Welcome to Freedom Slay Podcast, where fempreneurs, side hustlers, and entrepreneurs come to fast track their success. If you're a millennial girl boss, listen, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the goods because every week you're going to get the tools that you need to slay your business goals to create a life of time and financial freedom. I'm Ganette Jones, your host and Freedom Slayer in charge here. Let's begin. Hey, hey, you are tuning into episode 55 of the Freedom Slay podcast. If you're new here, welcome. You've picked an awesome one to be your first. And if you've been here for a while, thanks for tuning in. I truly appreciate you. And a special shout out to you guys who've been sharing on social, taking me on Instagram. And those of you who've tapped on those stars, you know, I appreciate that, right? Leaving a review for this podcast. I'm so grateful for all of you, seriously. Now, today's episode is one of my favorites to date, and I don't say that very often. It is one of my favorite episodes to date, and I had a chance to speak with not one, but two brilliant business people all about their best-selling Amazon products and how they have gotten the attention of Target. Yep, you heard me right, Target, everybody's favorite red bullseye. They're selling their products in Target, so I'm so excited for them, and I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode to learn how they did it. Husband and wife team, Amber and Mark Success, such a cool last name. Don't you agree? Like, I think that's the coolest last name. They dive deeply into exactly how this happened and what you need to do if you have similar goals. Aside from teaching you what you need to do to successfully sell on virtual and real shelves, they also get into working with loved ones, because they're working with each other, husband and wife team. I said that already, right? And they share lots of behind the scenes information you need to know about scaling your business. Amber and Marks are the founders of Cotia Brand, and they have so much knowledge, like a ridiculous amount of knowledge. So you're guaranteed to learn a thing or five in this episode for sure. I met Amber through a mastermind and she just has such great energy. She's so sweet. She's helpful. She's real. And she's just an absolute boss. This was my first time speaking with Marks, though, and I felt like I found a new best business friend. (laughs) So together, they're just such a powerful duo and they're making major business moves and bank. So if you haven't been able to tell already by my excitement and just all the things I've already shared, just know this episode is jam packed with information. So you're going to want something to take notes with because... I'm telling you, it's so, 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 so good. Without further chatter from me, let's dive into this episode. Awesome, Amber and Marks. Welcome to Freedom Slay Podcast. Yeah, (laughs) thank you for inviting us on. Thank you for being here. And this is the first time I've had two people at once, so I'm really excited about this. Can you tell us, the listeners, a bit about who you guys are, you know, how you got started with entrepreneurship and what you do in your own words? Yeah. So what got us started in entrepreneurship was I originally had a career in aviation. I went to Purdue University for professional flight. So my big dream was to become a commercial pilot and fly for Delta Airlines and one of the other major carriers. Unfortunately, my interest changed once I got more into it. I found myself more interested in the business side of aviation. So I ended up graduating Purdue with a aviation business degree. From there, I went to the private sector of aviation. So what that means is when you have the Beyonce's or very affluent people flying into different cities, a lot of people don't think about this, but they're not flying into the main terminal, such as like Concourse B. 
they're actually flying into their own private terminals. So I was an FBO manager where I managed that private terminal where you would have celebrities and people high in the military and just affluent people coming in and out with their private jets. So it was very exciting. But once I got pregnant, it's just so interesting how once you bring a baby into this world, your interests and everything just completely changes, your whole entire focus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm sure you know, as a mom, with the birth of my first son, aviation just wasn't as fulfilling anymore. And so I started to dabble with different things in terms of entrepreneurship. The first thing I found was eBay. So back in the day, like, you know, I would say like four or five years ago, I used to like go to Goodwill and thrift shops and like find like Levi jeans or things that, you know, like the goodies that people would just throw away and I would flip it on eBay for money. And I actually made some pretty decent money doing that. Um, Awesome. So that's like the girl boss story. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I watched that movie too. That was super inspiring. But yeah, so I did that for a little while. However, it just got to be too much, honestly. I mean, I had the baby on me in the carrier and I'm walking through trying to sift through the clothes and check the value online. And I was like, gosh, there has to be a better way to make money. So from there, Marks and I just started to, you know how it is, you go on Google and YouTube and you're like, how to make money online or what's out there. And so then we stumbled upon Amazon. People were doing all different types of things to make money on Amazon. People were doing wholesale, people were doing arbitrage, retail arbitrage, and then people were doing private labeling. At the time, I just did arbitrage because that's what I knew. I came from eBay where I buy something and I flip it. So I essentially did the same thing on Amazon and made even more money doing that. But then again, it just really tied up my time. And one thing, I don't want to get too in the weeds here with Amazon in terms of flipping product, but essentially you're competing with a lot of people because like we all have the same product we're trying to flip online. And so there were just a lot of things that just didn't work out for me with that business model. And so eventually it led us to creating our own brand, which is Cotier Brand. So that's my story. No, I think I love it. It pretty much summed it up. I think we went through a lot of business models of selling online to arrive at the conclusion that the best path forward for us was selling physical products under our own brand, which is the private label business model. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who may be listening, arbitrage, you may have got it from what she said. It is buying things and selling it. So let's say Walmart has something on special or it's something really low price. And were you buying like pallets or were you just buying like individual products? We started out buying individual, individual. products mm-hmm. through the Goodwill or finding sales. You know, you can find sales anywhere, like, you know, like an action figure, like a collectible action figure selling for low. I think at one point we sold cutting like chopping boards that were Mm -hmm. selling for a really low price. Anything you can find on clearance or a low price that you can sell for a markup. uh, That's what arbitrage is. But we did scale up. I eventually did get a uh, one of those liquidation contract deals with Macy's. And we started buying uh, pallets of clothing. Man, that was crazy. Oh, wow. That's a boss move, like <laughs> getting a contract with Macy's. That's crazy. That first delivery of like 5,000 oh garments my in my apartment. I'll never forget and it that. it was day. good stuff too, like yeah. Calvin Klein. Yeah, and Michael, Michael Kors. 5,000? Were you able to sell 5,000? Yes. We sold. Did we? We, yeah. we, uh, we? we just donated like maybe the last lot. Yeah, we had switched business. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. We, I think we did run through those. Yeah. Just about, yeah. That is so cool. 
And for those listening, so you did mention, I know you mentioned that there was a bit of comp- more competition when you're doing it that way, because now you're looking at brands that aren't technically your name. So let's say you have something that's Kelvin Klein or something that may be like, I don't even know the name of a toy, but like Mattel, I think that is like the Barbies, yeah. you know, that's someone else's brand and a bunch of people could have it. So for those of you who are listening, who aren't a part of the Amazon world, when they're saying private label, what they mean is something that's their own brand. So they own it. Right. So it's something that maybe they have a trademark for that's specific to them. So you can have five different rubber ducks, but maybe one is called yellow ducky, you know? Anyway, probably a terrible example, but just, you know, so those that are listening can understand. But it sounds like you guys have been at this for a minute. So how long ago were you doing like the arbitrage and selling on eBay stuff? Like what year was that? That was 2017. Oh, so not too long ago then. Yeah. Awesome. No, that's cool. So yeah, 2017. That's not very long ago. So you guys have come a long way in such a short period of time. I love it. And I know the two of you work together for your business as you've been talking about. So how do you make that work? And I know it's a lot of people out there who may say, you know, don't mix friends and family with business. What do you have to say about that? And how do you make it work for you? Well, first of all, not mixing family and friends with business is great advice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like I would not get that twisted. That's definitely great advice. I'll let Amber speak on this, but I will say from my perspective, for us, it has worked out really, really well. Yeah. It has not been without its child, its challenges. We pretty much started a business. Mostly had, with him. I'm perfect. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll, let, I'll, let her, I'll let her have that. That's the first, that's the first lesson number one. Pick, pick your battles. Okay. That's, I love it. But uh, the point being, I think it really, I just happened to marry a, a woman that is great business savvy and somebody who, you know, when she comes up with ideas, it's worth listening to. I have a lot of respect for the things that she says and what she comes up with. And I think she's an entrepreneur of the highest order. It just so happens that I uh, married somebody of the right character that really makes this work. And that's my perspective. I'm sure you can dive in. Thank you, sweetie. Oh, so many points right now. He's getting so many points, Amber. (laughs) You're just filling the love bank. (laughs) For me, I would say communication is the biggest thing that allows us to work together because a lot of times when, you know, you are working with friends and family, there is that, like, you're casual with one another. Unlike with corporate where, you know, you're sending emails back and forth. Sometimes when you're working with your spouse or a close friend, a lot of times important things are discussed just casually when you're eating breakfast together or taking the kids to daycare. And so a lot of times things get lost in translation. So what's really helped us kind of be able to work together a lot more smoothly is just writing things down and communicating things through email. It might seem redundant and a little silly in the moment, but uh, it helps out so much because then you can go back and say, hey, we did say we were going to start this campaign on that date or, oh, you said you were going to take care of that. Okay, cool. So I'm not going to do that. So, yeah. I love that. That's brilliant advice. So even if people are obviously more comfortable working together, if they're, if they are working with family or friends, loved ones, you know, having that open communication, but then backing it up with a paper trail, not necessarily to say like, I did do this, or you did say this mm-hmm. or whatever, but more so just so that you have that organization because so many other things are happening in your day-to-day life. So I think that's awesome. You guys are so cute. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And congrats, because you guys have some really big news. So congrats on your target placement. That's super major. 
Yes, thank you so much. It was a long time in the making. Yeah. What, over a year? Definitely, yeah, over <laughs> a year for sure. Oh, wow. Oh, we're going to dive into all that. I love to know the behind the scenes because some people may think that it just happens overnight where Target finds out your product exists and they call you and they're like, we want you tomorrow. So, you know, I know it's so many things that happen behind the scenes that go into it. And many may think it's luck, but I know it isn't. So can you share what goes into that? Like, what is it that led up to the whole year process? We'll be back after a quick break. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it? And what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. In 2019, in June, we made the decision that we wanted to be in retail. And this just came after uh, interviewing a lot of our customers and really doing good uh, in close communication with them and discovering that they were avid Target shoppers and that Target was a location of kind of their their first thought when planning their events. So I decided and and Amber agreed that we were going to go ahead and get into Target. And it's a huge thing to kind of say that, but, you know, fast forward a year and some change later, and here we are. So getting started with that, first of all, just heavy research, um, really kind of diving in and understanding how the retail business model works. I think if you are in e-commerce and you're selling well, which we were, it's not an unfathomable leap into retail. It's just, you know, you can definitely pictured in your mind, essentially, you're just selling your product on a different venue. But now it's just about getting products on shelves. The difficulty with retail is that these are old school, big bureaucratic machines, <laughs> you know, kind of they move at their own pace. There's a lot of there's thousands mm-hmm. of involved and it is a monster. It's not logging into Shopify and creating an account. It's not signing up to be a professional seller on Amazon. This was a definitely one of the bigger undertakings I've ever gone through. And uh, yeah, it was intense. And I mean, Amazon is a lot too, because I'm in the process of doing all that now. So for you to say that this is a whole nother beast, I'm like listening with ears perked because I would like to get into Target one day as well. So I'm like, oh man, okay. And actually let's backtrack a little bit because I remember... At the beginning, you were saying what you were doing before, but we never mentioned what you're actually selling now and the name oh, of your business and all of that. So let's get into that. <laughs> what is it that you are getting Target to put on the shelves and where did you research and all the things? I have so many questions. <laughs> well, well, no, yeah. Keep them coming. Yeah. So I can't believe we didn't even mention our company. We just got straight to the meat. But yeah, so our brand is called Cotier Brand. We are a party supply company but we focus specifically on party games and activities. And the reason behind this is because we find in our personal opinion, and I hope you agree, that the heart and soul of any party and gathering are the people that are there. So you can have bomb food, great decorations, good music, 
But if people aren't talking, if they're not interacting, laughing, engaging, then the party's whack. So for us, we we took that and we said, okay, so what can we do to encourage people to gather more or when they're together, how to have more of a good time and connect? And so with that, we've created a best-selling baby shower game on Amazon. Uh, we launched our own mimosa bar decoration kit. And our latest innovation has been Convocans, which is a conversation starter napkin. So you'll notice the thread between all of our three products is getting people engaged, sipping mimosas, talking, using napkins to start conversation. And then with our baby shower game, Did Baby Poopy, it's a fun lottery scratch off game where you reveal a poop emoji. So that is a lot of fun too. We're all into breaking the ice and just getting people to relax and talk and just create those memories. So that's what our brand is about. And specifically with Target, they're going to be carrying uh, the Did Baby Poopy Baby Shower game, Mm -hmm. which has been a great refresh to baby showers since those are pretty much all the same. And uh, Convokins, they really took a liking to Convokins. It's very innovative. Nothing like that exists on the market. So those are the two products that we're going to be launching with them first. You might want to- that is so cool that you have two. Like, man, you guys have put in work because usually, you know, you start off with one and you're like, okay, Target, we'll see how they like it. But they're starting off with two. So I need to know, like, how did all this come to light? I know you said that, actually, I'll backtrack a little bit because you mentioned a few things that marks, you probably didn't even realize you said this. And for those of you listening, I'm saying Marks. It's with an X. It's a really cool name, not Mark. (laughs) (laughs) But when Marks was talking earlier, I don't know if you picked up on it, but he said that he was listening to his audience. After interviewing the customers, he realized that a lot of them were target shoppers. So that's understanding his audience. But then he said he went into really diving into the research and seeing what it took to sell in retail. And that's so important, no matter what it is that you want to do is stopping and saying, okay, let me learn the behind the scenes and how this works. So can you teach us a little bit about how retail works and how you went from wanting to get into target to actually getting into target? Okay. So first things first, at the end of the day, put all the complication aside, put all the red tape and bureaucracy aside. You target only wants to put items on their shelves that they're confident that their guests are going to purchase. What I began doing was anytime I saw a target, our local target, anytime we traveled, any target I ran into, I went into the store. My goal was to identify the exact location in the store where I would want to see my product placed. Mm -hmm. So I began perusing the aisles, understanding the different targets, what aisles do they have? retailers have what are called categories and these every category is where they how they classify their goods but every category also has an assigned buyer they have their own buying structure there's an associate buyer a senior buyer then there's a merchandiser and then all those follow the typical vp chains and executive chains all reporting as separate verticals into into in, in their company so the point being i identified where in the store i wanted my products and i even went as far as to even place my product on the shelf, take pictures just to sort of I see how my product looked next to the other products. You know? Genius. That is so genius. Yeah, I'm you, loving this. You have, to, you have to consider that. Like what color are the other products in the aisle? What color should my packaging be? Can my packaging even hang? Okay, on this aisle, they have hooks for the products. You know, should then does, can my product accommodate that? Am I retail packaging ready? What's the price point of the other products in the aisle? Does my product sitting there even make sense? I'm trying to also see, 
you know, how often do I see people perusing that aisle? Is the aisle ransacked? Mm -hmm. Like, are people actually going through there and, and purchasing is, things? Uh, not to interrupt, but that is one thing that we noticed at our local Target when we went into the party favors and party supply section, because one of our biggest sellers is our baby shower gang. We were constantly kind of checking in every few days to kind of see how their baby shower supplies were doing. We were noticing like, wow, the gender reveal balloons are really selling, the baby shower balloons, the napkins. I was like, wow. So even here in our area, there's a lot of movement in this particular aisle. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. So there's that, you know, you want to look out for all those things. And so we, we got to work updating our packaging and really getting our product to look like it belongs on the shelves and really just calculated just from observation. I'm looking at the price points and I'm feeling very confident. I know we sell a lot of volume online and I'm thinking, you know, we can definitely translate this to stores, but it has to make sense to the shopper. See, a lot of times what e-commerce people get into the rut of is we explain our shelf is what people see on their computer screen or their phone screen. And we sell the product there and there's very little thought put into how it arrives. But in retail, your product on the shelf and how it's presented sells the product. And mm -hmm. it has to communicate that you can't just throw it in a no name box and just deliver it because the person knows what it is. You have to do all of that in one setting. So preparing the product in that regard was a big thing that we did. And in all of these things, we didn't really spare too much expense. We really wanted to do it right. You know, we enlisted whatever help you can. If you have a designer and they charge a little bit more, that's kind of just what it takes. So there was that. Then there was the whole getting in touch. The hardest part about retail, in my opinion, was actually getting a buyer to pay attention to you. This is actually, and when you get into this, is the reason trade shows exist. People think, you know, you're just going to network in your industry. Like, yeah, but you're also hoping that there's buyers and publishers and magazines and stuff around so that you can get visibility with your product. And getting in touch with those people is, is an art form in itself. You know, you want to attend trade shows. Hopefully they're there. But for me, I was doing a lot of cold calling and emails, being able to quickly explain your brand and communicate your product. You know, if you call into any of these companies, they'll tell you to fill out your form online and then somebody will get back in touch with you. And just to let everybody know, spoiler alert, they'll never call you back. <laughs> if you go if you go online and you fill out their form to be a potential supplier, you're not going to get a call back. What you have to do is <laughs> you have to be more overt. You have to sell yourself. You have to reach out. I reached out for a very long time. My yeah. wife will tell you, even on our anniversary, we took a little anniversary trip. And, yeah. and, I was like, and before we even went out for dinner, Ganete, like he was like, okay, wait, wait, wait a second, babe. We can't go out to dinner. I have to make a couple more calls. And I'm just sitting there on the couch, all dressed up cute. And I'm like, okay, babe. All right. So I, I kind of had, had my checklist and I was just going through it and I had assigned myself a couple calls that day. And I was like, it's still business hours. Somebody could pick up the phone and somebody did. They pick up did, the phone. which was crazy. That was crazy. On your anniversary. Look yeah. at that. <laughs> It was kind of bittersweet. She's rolling her eyes and she's ready to go. And then I'm like, but we got someone to answer the phone. So I did a lot of that. And I understand there's accelerator programs and there's a lot of different ways to actually target reaches out and other retailers. I think Target does a great job reaching out uh, and trying to find these small brands to work mm -hmm. with. But there's other retailers that do it as well, too. So you want to take advantage of all those programs. For me, in that moment, I was trying to identify my category and really try to get in touch with some people. And also, one other thing, a lot of entrepreneurs forget about the social capital that they have. At the end of the day, you're trying to serve people, and that's where they're exchanging their money for whatever product you've got. But a lot of us know people. We have social capital. You know, that's physical money, but we also have social capital. Who do you know? 
you know, I reached out to a lot of old friends. You know, I ran into someone at a friend's wedding who happened to have a job at Target and I, you know, reached back out. Hey, how can, you know, hey, long time no talk. And I just was very honest. Hey, I'm working to do this. Is there, do you know anybody? Who should I be contacting? That led me down a, a certain path. There's somebody else you talk to and they might have a connection or, or they, you never know. So you really got to explore who you know and who you can talk to to potentially advance your cause. And maybe you should be speaking to that person on the elevator instead of riding in silence. Wow. Nobody's doing elevators in this climate. But <laughs> yeah. uh, next time you're on an airplane and there's that stranger next to you on their computer, maybe what do they do? You never know who could be uh, you could add to your social capital so that you could get into doors that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get into. I pressed so many buttons. I can't even identify. I had to send a thank you to everybody that I that I requested <laughs> help from because I didn't know who had said what that actually got the door to completely open for me. But around Christmas, I think in December, we got invited to a private trade show, the minority trade show at Target's headquarters. And uh, that's when we were able to present our brand and our products to the appropriate buyers at Target. And that was a great experience. We had to go to Minneapolis and present our brand. That's where it all started. Then after that, COVID-19 broke out immediately afterwards. And then uh, the onboarding process was all remote. So we literally got a chance to go to Target headquarters right before all of this occurred and uh, the rest is history. Look at that though. That's divine timing. Like that's crazy that all of this happened. Cause as you're speaking, I'm thinking, man, that trade show, like all of those things would be pretty non-existent or difficult right now, even more so with COVID happening. So it was like perfect timing for you guys. Yes. And Amber, you know, I love you. And now Marks, I'm just like, you guys are brilliant. Like the things you're doing. Thank you. And what you did reminded me of something that similar that I did when my book was coming out. I went to the bookstores. I mean, the little small local ones. I went to Barnes and Nobles when I traveled and all the things and I look to see which aisle it was in what the books look like and it's like you want to get that feel and I would have never thought to do this with the physical product I mean I was brazen I put my book even at you know the airport bookstores as you're walking about um I even like threw my book on a few of those and I'm thinking hey someone may take it to the counter and they're like hey this isn't in our registry but if enough people take it there they're gonna want to go get it so it's like things you do in order to begin getting the attention of the person who's in charge of this but also to make sure that you're ready and that you're able to stand up against those that are around it as well so I thought it was brilliant that you put it on the shelf like that was genius And when you got the call, I guess my question now is when you got the answer, I should say, when you called on your anniversary and someone actually picked up, like, what did you say? (laughs) Like, what was it that you said to them that you think, you know, started this ball rolling? That actually did not get the ball started rolling. That particular phone call was a buyer that probably regretted picking up the phone (laughs) Um, because they get inundated with calls from different vendors all the time. But mm-hmm. actually, I she helped me out because I was assuming my product belonged in a certain category. And she helped me kind of confirm that that doesn't sound like your products are quite that particular category. So for instance, we sell a baby shower game, but it's not a traditional card game. I don't want to be next to board games. I want to be next to the baby shower decorations stuff like that right Mm, yeah because when people are going for baby shower items that may not even be something they think they need but when they see it they're like oh yeah i need this exactly so there here's a case where the actual physical classification of your product 
may not match up with where you want to be in the store in terms of your category for their corporate structure. So mm. when I said what I thought, she was like, that doesn't sound right. And then that helped inform my communication moving forward. Like, all right, I, I need to stop mm. inquiring about that particular category because that's not actually where I want to be. So from that call, that was the bit of information I took away from that call. And I just kind of kept going. I ended up certifying my company with several organizations where you kind of got to fill out paperwork with your local the SBA, the Small Business Administration. And what they did was... I got certification that I'm a minority owned business. And that was very key because then I was able to state that pretty concisely in my emails to the buyers. Hey, I'm certified. Here's here's my documentation or whatever. And then then those things mean a lot to any retailer that you're, you're interacting with. So that helped me move along that route. And several months later is when I finally gained traction. Somebody wanted to know more about the business. And through email, they requested that we set up a time to kind of go over our brand and kind of pitch it to them. Right. And oh. so yeah, they set up like a, a zoom. They had like, they were like, Hey, we'd love to hear more about your product. Uh, set up a time so we can kind of talk about this. This was in like November ish in 2019. And I went ahead and set up, you know, like a zoom meeting. And so we put together a presentation and we uh, apparently did very well. Cause then after that we got invited to the trade show and then the trade show got introduced directly to the buyers. And then a couple months later, we began the onboarding process, uh, which okay. is another, another segment itself. <laughs> so this is so much good information. So now I'm just, every time you speak and I'm getting more and more questions popping up in my head. So yeah. as yeah. you're saying that, you know, your presentation was amazing. Like, what do you think was in your presentation that really made you stand out? Or is something where you were like, oh, we have to have this information and you recommend other people to make sure they include that piece of information? Okay. So in terms of our presentation, I would say the biggest thing that really impressed Target was our knowledge of who our customer was. Basically, what impressed them most was how well we understood our customer and how well we understood their purchasing journey. The fact that we were targeting Target. We're reaching out to you because we know our customers. We've talked to our customers. We surveyed them. In the middle of our presentation, we gave them a very detailed profile of who our customer is. So for instance, when you ask most people who their customer is, right, they'll tell you, oh, you know, middle-aged woman, you know, ages 25 to 40. Two and a half kids. Two and a half kids. Yeah, all the demographics, you know, maybe the race and, you know, all of that. Yeah. But the, the deeper questions you really have to ask is, what is your, we call it the avatar, right? The, your, mm-hmm. yep. what are they doing right now? Mm-hmm. What does a good day look like for them? What does a bad day look like? What do their friends think about them? Mm-hmm. What do they enjoy doing before they go to bed? What's their bedtime routine? Where does like, she go for inspiration? Exactly. You know, is and, she a Pinterest person? Exactly. Or, you know? So when you start diving and asking those deeper questions and saying, we know our customer on this level, like I know what my customer is doing right now. Mm-hmm. I know if you told my customer this, this is what they're going to ask for next. And this is coming from firsthand communication with them. Like this is what Target likes to see because at the end of the day, like I said at the beginning, you have to dumb it everything down. At the end of the day, when you throw all the complication and bureaucracy aside, this has to be a win-win situation for you and for your prospective retailer. So they want new customers to come into their store. They want to know that every square inch of product that they put on their shelves Mm -hmm. brings new customers and new 
dollars into their store and hopefully they buy other things and stay there, right? And continue to come back. You want to use their branding to promote your product. You want the validation that comes with that retailer and you want to be exposed to their other shoppers as well. So you, that's the perspective that they're coming from. And a brand that understands their market and understands their actual customer, that's gold for a retailer. Hmm. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I like that you guys did focus on those psychographics. I talk about it all the time. I call mine a PVC. I know a lot of people say ICA, the ideal client avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, and PVC is just perfect vibe and client, but it is the same thing in the aspect of you are looking at the demographics and the psychographics and you want to know, you know, where are they hanging out online and in real life? Like, what are their goals? What things keep them up at night? Like knowing those things are so important. And then the other piece is just making sure that they're a great vibe and fit for your brand, you know, but I really do love that, you know, your audience so well. And how were you surveying them? Were you surveying them after they purchased on Amazon? Was it on your website? Was it via email? Like, how did you get all of this information about your audience? Because someone may be listening and they're like, well, how do I know this? I mean, I can ask a few people that come into the store or whatever, but I don't know how to reach out to them. That's a great question because it really boils down to the marketplace that you're using or the platform that you're selling your products. So for somebody that is operating from a Shopify store, that's really easy because your customer is on your site putting in their information and now you control the data. However, although Amazon has a lot of great benefits, especially on the traffic side, one of the downsides of putting your products up on Amazon is that they protect their data. So every customer order that you receive through Amazon, Amazon views that as their customer. And when I say that, that means they don't give you email addresses. They don't give you um, physical addresses. They really try to strip down all the information to the bare minimum. And so in order for you to, especially if you're launching on Amazon or even Etsy, right? Mm -hmm. You have to find very strategic ways to be able to extract, to kind of lure your customer over to realize, hey, I'm a brand. I'm not just another product that you added to your cart. And you do that through product inserts. So in a way, essentially, it's a physical lead magnet. So there's so many different strategies. There's really no wrong way to go about it. I mean, you could do a giveaway. You could do hey, download our free checklist for 10 amazing recipes. It's whatever you think your avatar would be willing to opt into. And so once they opt into that on your insert card, you can then create communication with them, um, give them more value, show them your blog or whatever medium you use to continually offer value. And then from there, I mean, you'd be surprised like for $20 or $25 Target or Amazon gift card, people are very willing to get on the phone and talk with you. Uh, some customers will talk to you for like an hour, just telling you about their day, how their you know event went or how they loved your product or sometimes just like, oh, I love this about your product. But wow, if you could have this part, so that's how we did it. I don't think it's too complicated. Just really being yeah, it'll, strategic it'll, with our inserts. It'll be different for every brand that considers this. But you just once you identified your customer, rel- be relentless about offering them value and yeah. eventually with some effort, you can get on the phone with them. They'll talk to you. They'll communicate with you. They'll become fans and advocates for you. And that's how you get all this information, you know, and then you're not Mm -hmm. guessing anymore. Love it. Jeez, you guys are awesome. So now you're making me think I just got my inserts printed, but then as you're talking, I thought of something else. I'm like, man, I should have put that on the insert as well, but it's fine. (laughs) Those inserts will forever evolve. I'll tell you right now, we still have never been able to settle on one forever. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) 
I love that. And you had mentioned, Mark, that on the other end of it, it's even more work with the onboarding process. So was there anything you learned along the process that you had no idea was even a requirement? Did anything surprise you at all? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to keep it high level so that I don't (laughs) bore your listeners here. But Man, my ears, both of you are just dropping so many jams. Like my ears are wide open. I'm sure they're not bored. They will not get bored. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I want to preface everything by saying that this is in no way like an indictment on on any of these retailers, because if you really think about it objectively, for years, these big box retailers have been pushing groceries and retail items through physical stores. Amazon has come out and made online like a force to be reckoned with. So you've got these big retail conglomerates trying to turn into technology companies. So the issue with this onboarding process to big box retail is that in my estimation they are trying to make online accessible because they want to follow they want to you look at target's past earnings report their online shopping increased almost double you know so it's like you gotta accommodate that from a technology standpoint but still fit the corporate structure that has been working for you up until this point you know you still can't neglect physical retail, your, your location. So mm-hmm. that causes a lot of complication in terms of just humans involved. Selling online, you know, you get used to, oh, here's your form and, you know, upload your picture to this field and put your product description here and you target your keywords here and, you know, get your inventory to this location and you're live. And with Target, it's more like, do you have insurance? Like there's all these other uh, questions. Where are you shipping from? We need to apply for this. We need you to fill out these forms. We need to know who's your, who are your corporate officers? Who's going to be running for, who's going to handle compliance? There's just so many different things because they're onboarding you as a supplier uh, with the potential for them to do business with you any number of ways. So they have one process that they've been onboarding people for years and you're going to be subjected <laughs> to it. You mm-hmm. know. So, it's intense and it takes time. There's humans that you might have that you'll have to speak to. I was very surprised that accepting an order and them transmitting an order is an ordeal in itself. You know, any of these retailers uh, you go to, you will have to use what's called EDI. EDI is a universal way that these companies exchange agreements for purchase or purchase orders. And you have to be able to accept that. And it's not just an email. It's a whole interface. It's a whole separate company that you'll have to work with just to translate that data. I didn't know that. <laughs> so <laughs> mm-hmm. it, was, it was a learning curve um, that you need a lot of help with. I enlisted the help of a vendor rep and that really helped me through the process because they know Target intimately. They know their deadlines. They have daily meetings with these buyers. And once you establish contact, you'll definitely want to sign up for vendor representation. In my opinion, they just know the process and you'll you'll want to be able to lean on somebody for advice on how to do all this so and how did you even find out about vendor reps like there's just so much information like yeah that's through research first yeah. of all when you start researching this you'll find those services are offered to you right away hey let us rep your we're a distributor and we can get you into retail there's all these do it done it do it for you services but you'll have to sign up for a contract with them and they're going to want continuing revenue from your sales Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, or a lot of times it's a hefty fee up front and there really are no guarantees. These people are not necessarily in retail. They can only work hard to get you in there and whether or not they do that is up to you. What I'm referring to, what I did was I was able to establish contact. I got the green light from a buyer 
And then I went ahead and got a vendor rep and they were able to help me with the onboarding process. So that's what I would recommend. And I only knew about that because, you know, the buyer suggested it. Plus, when we spent time up at the headquarters, Mm -hmm. some of the other staff people there just said, you know, hey, it's a nominal fee for a service that's really going to be really valuable to you. Because even after you get onboarded, there's line reviews. uh, There's all these things that you're not aware of that these vendor reps will be able to kind of manage and kind of package everything up together for you and kind of give you direction on what to do. So, But it's also on the opportunity side as well. So when we went to Target in February, before we actually had the business fair in the morning, we actually got to sit through a session where we had actual buyers, merchandisers, vendor reps, Mm -hmm. people in logistics. We were given the opportunity to ask them any question we want. And so the vendor rep question came up because technically you don't have to have a vendor rep in order to interface with a major retailer such as Target. However, when we ask the senior buyers, hey, do you guys prefer to speak with the vendor rep or with the actual owner? They were like, vendor rep. (laughs) And the reason why is because a lot of the vendor reps that are out there, they have established relationships with the particular retailers. So they know about the onboarding process. They know about EDI and they know about things that you don't even know about. But more importantly, there are certain vendor reps out there who actually have a sitting, I would say sitting meetings with Target or with other major retailers where if there's huge marketing campaigns coming out, highlighting, you know, Black success stories or there's a big holiday campaign, they're going to be the first ones to know about it internally and they can communicate that to you as an owner. And then from there, you can find a way to be a part of that opportunity. So I would say having a vendor rep is is more about the opportunity versus just, uh, I'm just giving a couple of points away. So there's just so much, I think there's so much upside to having a vendor rep, even though they take a couple of points away. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a bit of a literary agent where they are that intermediary, but they're the ones with the relationship, like you said, with them, they know the ins and outs. They know how to best guide you based on their knowledge and past experience. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. That's good to know. I think the last thing I'll add is at the end of the day, you get them because the last thing you want to do is be difficult to be to do business with, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and for sure. When I get an opportunity to speak to a buyer, instead of asking them, like, what does this mean? What does that mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? A vendor rep enables you to, you know, when you have that FaceTime with the buyer, hey, we took care of this. I filled out Form 3085B and it's all here. It's submitted. I'm ready to go for the review whenever you're ready. You know, like the conversation and the progress is much more streamlined. So yes. you just want to be easy to work with and not... A hand, like they don't want to have to hold your hand. And I think mm-hmm. and especially if you're coming in as a emerging brand such as ourselves, um, when you come in with a vendor rep, it just gives you more credibility as well. You know, you know how it is. You know, when you're a small business, it's just sometimes this thing of like, okay, let's see what happens here, right? So you want right. to make sure that you always have professional representation as well. So we recommend vendor reps 100%. Yeah. That's a good point. And how much control do you guys have over your target placement? Like, do you determine, I know you mentioned earlier when you were saying you thought it was one section of the store, one category, and you realized it'll be better suited for another. Do you say that or do they determine it? Or are you able to say where you want it on the shelf space or how you want it positioned? Like, how much say do you have in this? They are very protective. I mean, most retailers are pretty protective of their shelf space. They've got the years of data and everything that tells them what sells best and how to move product. So you're going to be subjected to whatever their rules are as far as placement. 
and the category you're in, those categories literally control parts of the store. So if you really think about it, being approved for that doesn't translate well to online in the way that, you know, for most online, like if you are on an Amazon, Amazon will place you where customers are buying your product. So if they see that you're getting conversions for, you know, we're selling our mimosa bar kit and it turns out people are typing in brunch decor. Yeah, brunch decor. And it's selling there. And they're like, hey, we're going to put your product up here. And the mimosa bar is here. Or, hey, everybody who searches for wedding gowns tends to want to purchase mimosa bars. Amazon will see to it that your mimosa bar is somewhere near that wedding gown area, even though that has nothing to do with your with your keyword or category. So in stores and typically with these retailers with their online, every algorithm is a little different. But for the most part, you still have to work through a category buyer, which controls a part of the store and thus controls a part of their website. So they're going to want to keep you within their confines. Now, I'm still learning how this all works for the retail e-commerce because I'm trying to understand how much power I have over my placement online. And the answer to those questions is a little bit more complicated than working with your online search-driven algorithms that we're all used to being e-commerce business owners. So it's still a learning process. The short answer is you really don't have a whole lot of control outside of, you know, until you really understand the algorithm. Now, one other thing is you can pay to be wherever you really want to. So if they have a website, like, you know, just like Amazon has pay-per-click, you can pay for placement, whether that be on shelves in the store or on the website. If you want to appear at certain places, you can pay. They'll have an ad agency that will allow you to purchase space for your product, for your advertisement. And this is actually a whole separate business division within mm-hmm. Target that runs independent of Target is like this whole conglomerate where you pay for their marketing. It's to be part of their commercials, be part of their in-store banners and all of that. Everything you see when you walk into Target is purchasable. Mm. <laughs> so that's a whole separate, You like once you, if they agree to put you on shelves and you're like, hey, I really want to be on that prime. I want that end shelf spot and I want, you know, a picture of my brand so that customers can see it. They're like, yeah, uh, that's fine. And as long as they'll give you all everything you need to design all the colors and things of that nature, according to their guidelines, and then you can pay, you know, several thousand dollars and then you can have that placement. right? Where you, <laughs> need, you know, So that's a way for them to kind of monetize their shelf space. A lot of people don't think about that as like real world placement fee, like PPC. You <laughs> yeah. know? That's interesting, though. And I mean, it may make sense depending on, I guess, what your your minimums are, right? So I'm assuming that they have like certain amounts that they expect you to sell in a week or a month or a year or whatever it is. And is that like put out in a contract of some sort? Yeah, that's another thing. So (laughs) you're negotiating pretty much. I I always consider negotiation is happening anytime you're talking to them. So Mm -hmm. you want to watch what you're saying about your pricing and you want to watch what you're saying about anything it's hard to say how every category acts. You're eventually going to negotiate your final price to them through that category buyer. But what I can say is they want to drive for your best price, irregardless. So online and every retail is different. I have experience with one right now, but they pretty much, you will have to negotiate a, like basically a wholesale price with them. And it's just going to mm-hmm. have to meet their, they have their strict, uh, what they call PMU or percentage markup that they have and everything's different. Like that'll look different for clothes. It'll look different for electronics, but basically they'll have their metrics and you want to drill down to that and make them tell you first, but they'll always ask for pricing first. 
So whenever you give them that first price, you just have to make sure it's something you can stomach and there's enough rub in it for them on the other end. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just keep going. And that probably that's, won't be the last time they ask for pricing. So I'm sure that's good to know, because, again, I it brings me back to like the book thing. I didn't realize a lot of this was so correlated. But even getting your book into bookstores, it's the same thing. Where they're like, well, what's your cost? Right. That's the first right. thing they want to know. And it's like, well, initially, if you don't know any better, you want to say how much it cost you, like your raw cost to get it, lend it and get it into stores. Mm-hmm. But you also have to think about your time and, you know, that piece of it as well so that you're got a little bit of markup on it as well when you are selling it to them at a wholesale level hey, so every model is different you know yeah like you make sure you understand what the model is if you get placed in the model who's paying for shipping who's responsible to get all the way to the store mm-hmm. am i sending it to your individual stores or am i sending this to distribution centers then you're thinking to yourself well who's going to run my internal logistics i can't be responsible to ship all this stuff from my house to random eighteen thousand random locations it's like you have to think all this stuff through understand where the cost adders are for every step of the process. And then you never, I would never, ever, I don't care who's listening to this, never expose your actual cost. Smart, smart man. You always keep that, keep their cost to is as low as they will ever hear anything coming from you. You want to make sure that your profit is worth it. Is all this effort going to be worth my time? What, what does that price look like? Is that 40% for you? Is that 100%, 200%, whatever it is for you, make sure it's worth it. And then just make sure it's a good business proposition. If you if you know you're selling the product and you're selling it for 50 bucks and the retailer can only keep five bucks out of that transaction, you know you're dead in the water. You know, you got to find a way to make it worth their time. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just being smart and trying to uh, negotiate and, and think, put yourself in their shoes as well as your shoes is the way to go. But yeah. That's a dicey part of it is just trying to, I would do everything through email too. (laughs) Yeah. Get it all documented. You have time to think about your answer. (laughs) Yeah. If you talk on the phone about pricing, that's always, because sometimes you can get some great handshake deals done on the phone, but go ahead and send a follow-up email reiterating Mm -hmm. what was discussed and try to get some confirmation because those things can get dicey. And at the end of the day, if they decide to change their mind on percentages and markups and stuff, I mean, it's their world. Be prepared to walk away if it's not a good deal. Mm-hmm. I know I'm just going deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole because, again, this is something I just find so interesting. Like, what is the amounts they're requiring? Because I'm now thinking as well, like, that's a lot of upfront costs on your end, too, right? Because yeah. it means you have to produce these things in mass for the yeah. retail. So, like, is that something that you found difficult as well? Or was it fine because you were creating a whole lot anyway for Amazon? Right. So once they gave me the green light, I went ahead and placed the biggest order I ever have for our product. Was that scary or exciting or both? <laughs> it was exciting. In terms of risk, I'm always usually heavily focused on the positive side versus what yeah. goes wrong. My wife focuses on the negative side. I'm a side. very cautious person. Yeah, so <laughs> okay. So I'm Marks and Dean is Ember. Got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking more like how well this can go. I'm kind of ignoring how things can go wrong. But the reason why I'm focused on the positive by placing that big order I got the best pricing I've ever gotten on our product. You know what I mean? So it was just like, I'm comfortable in all these negotiations. Mm-hmm. I've gotten the best pricing possible for us right now. And oh, I mean, true. I, yeah. Because the bigger the order tends to be the lower the price for oh, you. So, oh yeah. That's the language right there. I don't even hold manufacturers to the same standard of customer service. When you go to Target, you expect great customer service. When I talk to my manufacturer, money is the language. 
obviously I've built a relationship now, so there's different expectations, but at the same time, it's just being able to place that large order gave me great pricing. And I know that we already have a vehicle to sell it in. And I'm also preparing my faith for big things through my retailer. So I want to be prepared. That's why I did what I did. And so there were no minimums since we were approved for just their.com as a trial run. There's no mm-hmm. minimums. These orders are going to come in one by one. And I just don't want to get overwhelmed. I want to make sure I have all the product on hand. And then uh, for sure. Yeah. And beyond that, and when they transition the shelves and they're ordering a couple hundred at a time, I'm sure I will enforce kind of my own MOQ. Like, hey, only call me for orders if you're willing to place, I don't know, a couple hundred at a time, whatever that might be. We have to negotiate that too. And uh, MOQ for those of you listening is minimum order quantity. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm turning into that guy. I don't you like know, it. it's fine. I got it though. I was following, but I said, let me just break it down really quickly. <laughs> but yeah, all that stuff is going to come in the future for right now. We are fulfilling one by one and I have more than enough inventory. So that makes me feel comfortable. And if they decide, hey, this is working out really well, we need you to send several thousand over here. I'm like, hey, I can do that too. That's um, awesome. So, and now it's just a matter, and this is just my business mind moving, like getting the PR side where you're getting in like the O-magazines and all of those yeah. things where you're making and building those relationships with the publicists and to get the journalists to get that brand out there so that people are running to Target and running to Amazon to grab your product. So I see it. I see the vision, you guys. This is going to be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. It sounds like you do a lot of the behind the scenes negotiations and pieces like that. And how did you come up with the concept? I'm thinking, is this you, Amber, where it's like you're the creative piece where you like come up with the ideas and figure out how to pull them together? Absolutely. Yep. That's me. So I create the, well, actually you helped with the first product idea. But yeah, so I'm pretty much the creative mind, the creative director behind Cotier Brand. All of the visuals you see on our Instagram and some of them on the website have come from me. Marks, he's really good at the logistics, negotiations, deeper into the numbers. He actually enjoys doing the numbers and all that. And I'm like, oh, I'd oh rather, my goodness. I was like, I'd rather be over here creating. <laughs> so yeah, and maybe that's another reason why we work so well together because his skill set complements mine and we don't really overlap each other too much there. That's what I would say. I'm the creative part of the business. Yeah. And in terms of product ideas, those really come from times where we're just sitting down talking, she's spitballing, throwing her ideas and I'm throwing mine back. And then products are kind of born out of that. And so that's how we came up with our our first three is just through conversations, just us clearing the table and just saying, here's the ideas we have. In fact, we even share a Google Keep file. Anytime we have ideas, we throw them in there just to peruse and look at and things like that. And every now and then a product comes, the price is right, the opportunity is there. We just go ahead and launch it. Yeah. So like, for example, our latest release, which is Convokens, it's a conversation starter napkin. So on the outside of this napkin, it looks like a plain, ordinary napkin. But when you open it up, it actually has a question prompt on the inside. And so each Convokins pack comes with 50 unique napkins. And every single napkin is completely unique. And it has its own question prompt. And so we range from very lighthearted questions all the way down to things that are deeper, such as how do you define success? Or what was something good that happened to you this week? Or when was the last time that you were brave to the lighthearted of like, maybe what did you eat for breakfast or something of that sort? Just something that a party planner or a hostess could use these really in any setting. 
They could really be used at networking events, birthday parties, baby showers, bridal showers, yeah. weddings. I think weddings actually are the best venue for our game, for our conversation started napkins. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, at least for me, I've been to so many weddings and it's just, you're sitting at a table with strangers and it's so awkward. And you're like, gosh, like, I know I should talk to people, but I like, <laughs> I don't know what to say, or I think I'm just going to go and hang out at the bar, maybe find somebody I do know. And so our conversation starter napkins kind of come in to spark that conversation. So at the table, you could have everyone just open up their napkins and say, oh my gosh, there's something in here. And then they read it and they start talking to each other and you just never know where the conversation could go. And then they could leave that wedding feeling like, wow, that was an amazing event. I talked to people and we created a good conversation. Like we ended up finding out that we both love Game of Thrones. So yeah, that was the inspiration behind Convokins. We're always looking for ways to get people to engage and talk at any event that you might have. I love that. And do they come in like a bunch of different colors like that? Or is it just like something that's more neutral that works with everything? Yes. Yeah, so our first pack is just neutral because we wanted it to match any theme that you have. However, we do have some ideas of expanding it. <laughs> yeah, like there's going to be expansion packs to this because what it is is just a game in a napkin form factor. So right now they're general questions, but yeah. I'm going to have controversial ones. There it is. Controversial. Like oh, I love that. Yeah. Yes. Packs, so yeah, I love extension packs for any type of game. My daughter has a game. I forget. What is it called? Exploding Kittens. And it's always like these extra and it's just a card game, but they always have these extension packs. So it never gets dry. It's like always something different that can be added. So that's genius. Yeah. You guys are so awesome. You remind me of the fabulous and Neo song. Like I'm a movement by myself, but we're a force. <laughs> yeah. together. Like that, seriously, I'm listening. I'm like, you guys work so well together. It's perfect. Yeah. I love it. And even like my mind, again, my mind just moves. I'm like Christmas napkins. Like you can literally have stuff just around the Christmas holiday. It's so many spaces for it to go. And I just think the whole idea is dope. You guys are awesome. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank you. you. And what about the Amazon side of that then? Are you going to continue selling on Amazon and pushing for Amazon? I know you said that you were selling really well. You have some best sellers there. How did you even get there? How do you sell so much on Amazon? And what do you call a good selling amount for a target to be like, oh, wow, you're selling a lot on Amazon? Oh, yeah. So we move pretty well on Amazon. We always kind of have from the inception of mm-hmm. our products. They, they sell pretty well. They do. Are you asking in terms of like, how did we get it to explode on Amazon? Are you looking more for the strategy? Well, yeah, a bit of the strategy piece, like how did you, but you said it was right from the beginning. So that just means that you had a great product that people were looking for and knew how to target, right? Mm -hmm. But even for target to say, oh, wow, they're selling really well on Amazon as well. Let me give them a go. Like, what do you think target has in mind? how much are they looking to see minimum people moving every so often? Cause I know people may be listening to the podcast thinking I would love to get there, but I don't know if I sell enough is 10 a day enough. Is a hundred a day enough. Is a thousand a day. Like what is it? I'm sure you may not know the exact number for target, but what is that number that you think may be something that they'll start paying attention? Like what do you think is like a good number to be doing well? It's more nuanced than that. Right. Because Number one, depending on what product you're selling, if I make mattresses or if I make bed frames, I might only need to sell two or three a day. That's great money. I would say being one of the top three sellers in your category on Amazon. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, that works too. But I'm also thinking more in terms of mass manufacturability, because there's a lot of people that make products, but making products and moving them are two different things. Target or any retailer, I don't want to just speak just in terms of Target, will your product leave our shelves? So if you go in the store and you see your product on the shelf and there's like 10 of those on the shelf, will those 10 sell in a day? And if they do sell, are they able to go back in behind in their fulfillment area and grab 10 more and put back on the shelf every single day? So I think the number, obviously they want to see great sales so that you want to have them salivating over your numbers that you're able to produce online. Mm-hmm. But you really have to think, if you look at their shelf and you're like, oh, okay, they put 10 of these out. I do that much online. That's great. But some people have products that it's really hard for them to have continuity of supply. I can't tell you how many times I run into brands and they sell and they're like, oh, guys, thank goodness. You guys are awesome. We sold out. There's no more. And it's like, congratulations. And that's great. Yeah, that's terrible. That's so- great. And that <laughs> still happens to us with some of our products. Mm-hmm. But the reality is when you get into the retail game, that cannot happen. That's After- terrible for them. So- yeah. So Target really thinks about it. And money is the money. Money is money. They expect a certain amount of money out of that section. That's why you go look at how many are on the shelf, what the price points are. You can derive the math yourself, right? But Target doesn't want to hold on to anything. You understand? So it's like, or none of these retailers want to hold on to anything. They want to get your product and they want to know that it's going to move. So the questions that they really start asking when you come in I mean, I can't think of one time that they even second guessed my numbers. Ever. They want to see previous sales history, but nobody questioned that. It was more along the marketing. How are you going to drive traffic to your products to get them off our shelves? That was the real question. Mm-hmm. And so if you're considering any retail, you have to think about that, like not just giving them products and selling and making the numbers look right, but how are you going to market? What are you going to do to make sure people come and buy your product because that means they're in our store, which is what we're in it for, and make sure that this product moves. Because if we have to store your product because nobody's buying it, this is going to turn bad for you really quickly. Mm-hmm. That's so good, too. And I'm glad you did mention how it is more nuanced, where a mattress would be different from someone selling pencils. You'd expect it to move differently, and they're definitely at different price points. And yeah, I love that concept of thinking how they're going to turn on the shelves and how you're going to be driving traffic to their store. A lot of people think, oh, I'm going into Target and I'm going to be selling a whole lot. So it's doing me a big favor. But it's also like, what are you doing to, like you mentioned earlier, drive traffic and new faces and new people buying and grabbing new money into their doors, new wallets. So I think that that's awesome. So you answered that and some. So thank you very much. And what recommendations would you guys say? you have for others who have dreams of seeing their products on the big virtual shelves and actual shelves. So we're looking at like the Amazons, the Targets, Walmarts, Walgreens, Costco, like all the big places. What advice do you have for them? My advice would be, because our experience really starts with Amazon. And so if, if there's anyone listening that is launching their brand off of Amazon, I would say really understand keywords, keyword research and how online shopping occurs. This kind of goes back to the question that you asked us previously, like how is that success defined by Target? Like what numbers are they looking for, right? To get them thinking, okay, yeah, we do want to try your brand on shelves or on target.com. With us going into the category that we went into on Amazon, we honestly did not see a lot of exciting products in the party game and activity space. 
However, because of the software tools we use, we saw a ton of demand. When I say a ton of demand, I say over 50,000 people a month looking up baby shower related terms or cocktail napkins or conversation starter games. And so when you start there from the demand side in terms of Amazon, it really helps you not only create a product, but also how to market it effectively. So not to get too much into the weeds here, but doing that research really enabled us both to create a really remarkable product that stood out in the marketplace, but more importantly, optimize it. So in terms of images, in terms of our title, our keywords, copywriting is so important if you are a physical product seller because you don't have a brick and mortar. You can't talk to the customer. So essentially, when a customer goes into your Shopify store or they go on your listing on Amazon, that is you. That is your sales rep. So copywriting is so important and not just good copywriting, good copywriting with good keywords that you know people are looking up. So if people are looking up, for example, modern baby shower games or icebreaker games for party, you want to make sure that you're putting that within your listing. And so just being very strategic on that front really helped elevate our products and allowed us to be very successful online. So much so that we have some of the number one products in the party game space. And so with that, if anyone here is a shopper on Amazon, you know some of the best products get Amazon's choice badges, bestseller badges. And so we've obtained some of those for very, I would say, very competitive keywords. And so that really helps elevate your brand. And you can take screenshots of that. Um, just like mm. uh, your book um, became a bestseller on Amazon. And so you you take that badge and you say, hey, it's Social a bestseller. Social proof, yeah. Exactly. Because not everybody can obtain that. So you really have to leverage that as much as you can and so we also leverage that in our presentation with Target. So when they see those numbers that we're moving on Amazon and they see the badges we've been able to make, uh, uh, to obtain, it becomes a really attractive offer for them. Mm-hmm. And I would just say to anybody who has aspirations of getting on the big shelves or any other websites is that just like Amber was saying, e-commerce is a great proving ground. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in this time and moment in human history where you don't have to have a booth or set up a brick and mortar, you know, you can get started, you know, and if you can prove yourself online, I think you can, you can sell anywhere. It's just a little bit of an adaptation, but you can do it. And Amazon is one of, I think one of the best opportunities now because millions of people are shopping on the website every single day. And it's just a matter of you putting your product in front of that person so that they can make that decision. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Such great advice. Oh my goodness. And when you were mentioning, you know, like the keywords and stuff like that. And, you know, it's all about the research because I know there are going to be people listening and they're going to say, well, how can I find it with asked on Google? And you'd quickly find some software tools that can help you to do this. So I know you have like jungle scout and helium 10 and so many other things, and they help you even beyond keyword research, but so many other pieces and plugins that can help you on the Amazon piece or side of things. Then you have like a keyword tool. You can search for Google keywords, right? When people are searching mm-hmm. just what are they searching for online? What are they going on YouTube for? You know, like all of these things, because if they're going on there, guaranteed they're going to find their way on Amazon because that's where the whole world shopping right now, right? right. So yeah. I think it's so smart that you guys are taking the time to research and really investing in the tools that are going to help to make sure that it's successful. And then you two are both just amazing entrepreneurs anyway. So 
Oh man, so many things. And I've had you guys on here way too long. So we're going to wrap up soon, I promise. Um, no so where, where can people find more about you? I know we said you're on Amazon and you're going to be on Target or you're on Target, I should say. But where, like, what should they be typing in when they go into Amazon? Or maybe it's your website. What's the best way they can find you? Instagram. Yeah, so the best way to find us is you can go to cotierbrand.com. That's our website. Um, you can also go to Amazon and type in our brand name and all of our products will show up. And you can also head over to Target and type in Cotier Brand or uh, Convocant, um or Did Baby Poopy. So any one of our products, you can easily find us. Perfect. And for those of you listening, and if you don't know how to spell Cotier, it is C-O-T-I-E-R brand, right? So what does Cotier even mean? So someone that's listening, and because I've seen that word a lot, right? And I'm just here in the complete dark. What, what does Cotier mean? Is it a French word? I'm assuming it's yeah. French. Cotier yeah. is the French word for coastal. Oh, uh, look at that. Amber <laughs> and I, we were living in San Diego and we came up with the brand and we were by the beach. And uh, we just decided to name our company the French word for coastal. Uh, you know, and I just, I guess we chose French because that's my heritage a little bit. My, my father's from Haiti. Right. And I do remember her telling me that. Yeah. My mother's from uh, Jamaica, but I guess French has played a huge role in, I guess, my upbringing here. So mm-hmm. we just chose it. It was available. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't. <laughs> Important, right? Yeah, the no, URL exactly. was there. <laughs> exactly. The URL was available. I bought it that day, you know, and I was just like, all right, <laughs> we're in business. <laughs> you guys got a trademark for the brand as well, right? Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. We talked about that. Man, IP I everywhere. Ooh. So, so you know, mm-hmm. intellectual property is IP, guys. <laughs> I hate that I'm doing that. I'm turning. It's it fine. It's, it's you are. You're one of those experts. Just throwing all the acronyms. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's fine. But yeah, locking up the brand name, the, the 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 image assets, the games, the you know every everything you can. You know, I'm casting. You know, we 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 take our time and invest in that too. So that's a good thing. So smart. Yeah, I love it. And when you said Convokins, that's like conversation. So Convo and Napkins all together, Convokins, yep. which is so clever. I love that name too. You guys are amazing. Oh, <laughs> thank you. And it's one question I like to ask at the end of every single episode, and that is, what does freedom mean to you? Hmm. Freedom for me um, is controlling your time. And what I mean by that is um, back when I used to work corporate, I just felt that I didn't own my time, you know, and now that I'm able to be a full time entrepreneur um, and be able to, like, take my child to um, to school and pick him up. It's just amazing how much freedom and liberty that entrepreneurship has brought me. So, um, yeah, freedom to me is controlling your time because, I mean, it's a finite resource. You can't make any more of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. for me, piggybacking off of what she said, um, you know, freedom is, isn't, isn't as esoteric as, you know, happiness and stuff like that, you know, where I think there is freedom is kind of a destination where like, once you're living it, you'll know it. And for me, uh, just to piggyback off what Amber said, you know, the most valuable resource in our universe, our universe is your time. Right. And a lot of people say use the phrase is common time is money. It's not your time is infinitely more valuable than your money. So for me, uh, I will know that I'm you know, walking in freedom, living in freedom 
when I am no longer trading my time for money, uh, I do think one day I'll reach a point where uh, instead of trading my time for money, I'm almost treating my time as currency in itself. I have this idea that mm. instead of thinking and think in terms of dollars, I'll be, you know, I'll spend my money on the things that I value, right? And without really considering, you know, without having to worry about, you know, saving a buck every way or withholding things from 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 doing things for my family or for myself that I don't want. Uh, but imagine, I imagine being able to live life and think in terms of, hey, I'll, you know, I'll spend two hours doing that or, hey, I want to give my kid 10 hours of my day and I, oh yeah, I'll, I'll spend a, a little time doing that. And I'm not doing it to earn the money. You know, it's not about mm -hmm. the money at that point. It's just about how do I want to spend my time? And when you start, when I, when I can live life and think in terms of how I'm spending my time versus how much money I made, I'll know that I'm truly free. And that's, I, to me, that will be the pinnacle. So I hope that made sense to us. Yes. I love that. I know. Right. I want to snap like I'm in a, in a <laughs> listen to poetry. You guys were amazing. Thank you so much. So many jams. I mean, these are the kind of podcasts I love to listen to where it's just so much information. You feel like you need a notebook to be writing this stuff down so that you don't miss out on anything. So thank you so much. You're both like, entrepreneurial geniuses and i love it <laughs> thank you for having us Ganeta. Yeah, thank you Ganeta. i really appreciate this thank you now didn't i tell you that was going to be a good episode i hope you got tons of information from it you've taken tons of notes and if you've made it this far, that tells me you've enjoyed it because this is a pretty long episode. It's longer than most, but I feel like every single second was needed and worth it and just so helpful. So if you've listened all the way through to the end, do me a favor, take a screenshot and tag me on Instagram. I'm at Gaynette, G-A-Y-N-E-T-E. -E. Yep, only one T in my name as well as tagging Freedom Slay Podcast. You can also tag Cotier Brand. And I'll leave my links for social media as well as for Amber and Marks for the Cotier Brand and the website as well as the Amazon links. I'll put it all below in the description and we'll chat next time. Adios. Okay, okay, I see you, Freedom Slayer. You stayed through to the end, which tells me that you likely enjoyed this episode. Listen, if you haven't already, do your sister a favor by heading on over to the iTunes store to leave a review for the podcast. It'll help others like you find a benefit from it. And look, it also helps with the rankings. Hashtag transparent AF. I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs>